This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for October 5th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It has been more than two years since voters in Great Britain voted to withdraw from the European Union. That exit is slated to begin in six months, March 29th of 2019. Citing economic and border concerns, Britain opted to remove itself from trade and border agreements with the EU. Yet with the looming deadline, where do things stand in the country? The Heritage Foundation's senior fellow, Niall Gardner, sits down with C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast to share his views on what's happening inside the negotiations and what could happen if they fail. Could the UK walk away from Brussels without a new deal? Or will the two sides come to an agreement before next spring? We begin, though, with the BBC's coverage of the results from June 24th of 2016 and the reporting of anchor David Dimbleby. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. We are absolutely clear now that there is no way that the Remain side can win. It looks as though the gap's going to be something like 52 to 48, so a four-point lead for leaving the EU. And that's the uh, result of this referendum, which has been preceded by weeks and months of argument and dispute and all the rest of it. The British people have spoken, and the answer is we're out. That was from June of 2016, and David Dimbleby of the BBC announcing the results of the Brexit vote. We are now six months out before another deadline. Niall Gardner, give us a status report. What's happened since June of 2016, and where is Great Britain heading next? Well, this is a historic time for Great Britain. We're just a few months away from Britain's exit from the EU on March 29th, 2019. Uh, And the latest is that Great Britain is still negotiating a trade deal with the European Union, setting the terms for Britain's exit from the EU. Those negotiations are extremely complex, tense, difficult, And at the same time, the the Conservative Party, the ruling party in Great Britain, is deeply divided over the Brexit issue as well in terms of the kind of deal that um, British politicians want to see with regard to uh, the future of Britain's relationship with the European Union. So a lot still to be sorted out. But I think one thing is very, very clear, that Brexit is real, it's happening, it's irreversible. Uh, and that ship has sailed. And so we're not going to see a reversal of the the referendum vote. 17.4 million Britons voted for uh, for Brexit. You're not going to see a second uh, referendum on Brexit. Uh, and uh, Brexit is, you know, a massive event in, in modern British history. And it's going to change the course of Britain's um, path, not only in Europe, but also on the world stage. And so this is really uh, a hugely important time for for Britain and for the British people and for Britain's place in the world. Uh, and I think 2019 is going to be um, a very, very uh, seismic year for uh, for Great Britain as we, we head towards Brexit. What is Brexit? For those who have not been following it, break it down. Well, Brexit simply means Britain's exit from the European Union. And so for several decades... Uh, Great Britain has been part of the the European Union, formerly known as the European Economic uh, Community, a grouping of 
28 uh, European uh, nation states. That grouping will be 27 when Britain uh, exits. Uh, and basically, for the past uh, over four decades, Britain has gradually lost its sovereignty and self-determination. So as a member of the European Union, for example, you cannot um, decide your own trading arrangements. Your trade is decided by by Brussels. Um, you cannot fully control your own borders. Um, you do not have full control of your own courts. Um, Two-thirds of British law derives from uh, the European Union uh, now. And so uh, over the course of, of many years, Britain's freedoms, sovereignty, self-determination has been uh, erased. And Brexit is all about restoring British sovereignty and restoring full British control over Britain's borders, its ability to trade freely, over its own laws, over its economy. And so on many fronts, uh, you know, Brexit is uh, quite revolutionary, actually, for Europe today, because um, if you look at uh, the current state of the European Union, uh, the EU is moving towards a European superstate. And my former boss, Margaret Thatcher, um, warned against the rise of a European superstate, which she said would go down in history as perhaps the greatest folly of the modern era. Uh, and in her bruised speech in the late 1980s, she warned against the rise of this European superstate. And she later went on to uh, write in her final book, Statecraft, that Britain should think about leaving the, the EU. And I had the privilege of working with Lady Thatcher for two years on that book, Statecraft, which came out in 2002. And she was the first British politician to outline the possibility of Britain leaving the European Union altogether, and which was very controversial in its day. But she urged a renegotiation with the European Union. And if Britain did not get a successful renegotiation, she recommended that Britain should leave, which is actually what happened. Uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron did attempt a renegotiation of Britain's very complex relationship with the European Union. That negotiation failed. And then we had the, the Brexit referendum and the vote to leave the EU. Well, you mentioned David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister. Here is what he said June 24th, 2016. I fought this campaign in the only way I know how, which is to say directly and passionately what I think and feel, head, heart and soul. I held nothing back. I was absolutely clear about my belief that Britain is stronger, safer and better off inside the European Union. And I made clear the referendum was about this and this alone, not the future of any single politician, including myself. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Now, Garner, what are you hearing from David Cameron? Yes, in fact, I was, I was there in London, actually, on that, that day. And uh, I was um, actually at the headquarters of, of Vote Leave on referendum night as all the results uh, came in. And then a few hours later, uh, David Cameron um, submitted his uh, or announced his resignation uh, as prime minister. And I think that was to his great credit. Uh, David Cameron had strongly opposed Brexit um, and his government had strongly opposed Brexit. 
But you had a revolution within the Conservative Party. A lot of uh, Conservative rebels rebelled against David Cameron, and the British people rebelled against David Cameron. And David Cameron, um, you know, made it clear that he thought another leader should lead Britain into the Brexit era, and it turned out to be Theresa May who won the leadership contest, really because the the Brexit uh, side, or the leadership of the the Brexit uh, side, was divided. Um, And Theresa May, who had been someone who had uh, campaigned against Brexit, emerged as the Prime Minister, and she's now, of course, overseeing the whole Brexit uh, process. But... Uh, you know, David Cameron, um, you know, admitted that, um, you know, he was not the right man to lead Britain into the Brexit era. Um, his his belief certainly was uh, was that Britain was better off inside of the European Union. That clearly wasn't the position of the majority of the British people, and he accepted that. And that's that's a great thing about British politics, really. You don't have figures who try to cling on to power. Um, and, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall for David Cameron. He's He stood down. That was the right thing to do, and I think he deserves a lot of... Uh, credit for that. On that same day, candidate Donald Trump was in Scotland. Here's what he had to say about the Brexit vote. You know, when the pound goes down, more people are coming to Turnberry, frankly, and the pound has gone down. And uh, let's see what the impact of that has. But I think places like Scotland and England and different places in Great Britain, I think you're going to see a lot of lot of activity. Uh, uh, the pound got high and people weren't able to do maybe what they wanted to do. But for traveling and for other things, uh, you know, I think it could very well turn out to be a positive. Nobody really knows. You'll know in about five years. You'll be able to analyze it, and maybe it'll take even longer than that. But what is known is that they've uh, taken back their independence, and that's a very, very important thing. Are there parallels to the 2016 election of Donald Trump and what Great Britain is now going through? That's a very good uh, question, and... Uh, certainly, Donald Trump has been a very strong supporter of Brexit. And uh, I think that certainly the Brexit victory against all odds, considering that almost every single opinion poll indicated that the Brexit side would lose a referendum. And um, it was very much a sort of anti-establishment surge, really, that resulted in the Brexit victory. I think Donald Trump benefited from that. It certainly gave him more confidence and self-belief that he could win the presidential election against all odds. Now, having said that, there was a big difference between the the Vote Leave campaign in Britain, which was the main Brexit campaign, and uh, Donald Trump's presidential uh, campaign. The, the, the messaging was, was often very different. Um, There's a very different style uh, to, to the campaigns, but I, I, do, I do believe that uh, Brexit certainly gave significant momentum to uh, to President Trump in terms of his own election victory. I think that the president views Brexit as part of his own DNA, and he has outlined his very, very strong backing for Brexit on every occasion uh, that he has commented on it. And he's also outlined his strong support for a US-UK free trade uh, agreement. And um, And I think it's important to bear in mind that a lot of British voters on referendum day felt that their voice had not been heard on the on the EU. They felt that the EU was a distant, you know, bureaucracy that was um, holding sway over the future of the British people. Um, and uh, and I think that um, this was, you know, to some, some extent, a strong sort of anti-establishment uh, movement with, with Brexit. You saw a similar kind of sentiment in the United States 
uh, with uh, with Donald Donald Trump. So in the case of Trump, it was a rejection of Washington. Uh, with Brexit, it was a rejection of of Brussels, basically, and the supranational power of the of the European Union. So. Um, yes, I do think the Brexit uh, vote was very significant in terms of Trump's own uh, trajectory, which is why I think he has emerged as you know, the single biggest supporter of Brexit on the world stage outside of the UK right now. We're talking with Niall Gardner. He is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And as we speak to you this first week of October, the Conservative Party conference in Great Britain wrapped up in Birmingham, England. This is what Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, said about Prime Minister Theresa May and Brexit. If we get it right, then the opportunities, frankly, are immense. It's not just that we can then do proper free trade deals, proper full fat free trade deals. In so many areas of the 21st century economy, this country is already light years ahead. Tech, data, biosciences, financial services, you name it, we're the leaders. And we can use our regulatory freedom to entrench and to intensify those advantages. And of course, our European friends and partners can see that that might be possible. And that's exactly why they want to constrain us. Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, is he currently Prime Minister May's political nemesis in the Conservative Party? I think it's fair to say that, although um, Boris Johnson, who I've met many times, um, you know, has made it clear that he's not seeking to uh, unseat the Prime Minister, uh, although um, certainly over the past uh, couple of days of the Conservative Party conference, Boris Johnson has emerged as not only a hugely popular figure in the Conservative Party, but also as somebody who would make a very um, credi- credible Prime Minister. Er- earlier this week, uh, Boris Johnson gave a you know a barnstorming address to the Conservative Party uh, faithful, which um, you know many would uh, would say is a, a leadership challenge or the beginnings of a leadership challenge to Theresa May. And without a doubt, I think if if a, uh, a Conservative Party leadership conference, uh, a Conservative Party leadership uh, vote were to be held uh, today, Boris Johnson would be the clear uh, front runner. Um, and his address to the Conservative Party was a very, very powerful address, which really appealed to the grassroots of the Conservative Party those who had wholeheartedly backed uh, Brexit, and about 70% of Conservative Party members uh, voted for Brexit. Um, And so Boris Johnson really appealed to those um, grassroots supporters of the Conservative Party who feel disillusioned with the direction that Theresa May has taken uh, the Conservatives on the Brexit front, and among those who view Theresa May as far too weak in dealing with the European Union. So a lot of tough words, tough language from Boris Johnson um, uh, earlier this week. And I do think that, you know, Boris Johnson, if he became prime minister, I think he would do an excellent job as, as prime minister. He is somebody who is highly intelligent, a great public speaker, but also a visionary um, a figure who thinks about Britain's place as a world leader uh, and he's also ideologically a uh, you know a Thatcherite conservative, uh, whereas Theresa May is not. Uh, and so there's a big distinction between Boris Johnson's outlook and Theresa May's uh, outlook. 
With that in mind, let me share with you the headline from a New York Times piece, which really breaks down the Brexit debate in Great Britain. The headline is, with Brexit six months away, anxiety is the only sure thing as the infighting persists. And the New York Times posing these questions, quote, Was Brexit, as Boris Johnson would argue, an act of emancipation that would breathe life into a once-proud imperial power? Or was it, as his opponents would contend, a gesture of rage by communities that feel left behind by politicians' false promises and tabloid-fueled xenophobia? How would you answer that? Well, I'd say that, first of all, the New York Times has Brexit completely wrong. And uh, the New York Times, uh, its coverage of Brexit has been very extensive. Uh, I, I always read the New York Times coverage of um, of Brexit because I think it's important to see what big US, U.S. publications are saying about Brexit. Um, but I think that uh, the New York Times, like um, the BBC and uh, a lot of um, parts of the uh, of the media sort of establishment, um, have Brexit wrong. And um, you know, having very closely studied the Brexit issue for many many years. Um, and having met with many of those who uh, led the Brexit movement and also uh, voted for Brexit up and down, um, up and down Great Britain, I have to say that you know Brexit is not about xenophobia or isolationism. Um, it's actually about a very positive vision vision for Britain, really, as uh, as a global uh, leader, as a free market leader. Um, as a as a nation that is going to be a very powerful actor internationally, but it's also about, of course, restoring control of Britain's borders and restoring British uh, sovereignty. And so Brexit supporters voted for Brexit for, for many reasons, but as opinion polling has shown, the number one reason for, for uh, voters backing Brexit is the restoration of Britain's sovereignty and self-determination. It's really the idea of taking back a control of Britain as a sovereign uh, nation, um, and and so I think there's a lot of mischaracterization of what Brexit is is all about, and it isn't about Britain sort of retreating from the world or sort of little England, you know, outlook. It's really about Britain being um, a global leader, a leader for free trade, a leader for free markets, and economic freedom, but also a self-assured country that's full control of its own laws, its own borders. Um, and its destiny and future. And I think Boris Johnson fully understands that and projects it, which is why he's really clicking with the base of the Conservative uh, Party uh, today. He's somebody who really understands what Margaret Thatcher used to call the beating heart of Middle England. And she she used to say that, you know, you cannot really um, win elections without uh, reaching out and embracing the beating heart of, of Middle England. Um, and uh, and I think that message is absolutely right. I think that you know Boris Johnson fully understands that. I think Theresa May is struggling with that that idea really, and she's still failing to connect. I think with the British uh, public. She sat down with John Dickerson of CBS News uh, late last month. Here's part of that conversation. You are engaged in trying to manage the UK from withdrawing from the European Union. Probably the biggest thing that Great Britain has been through since the World War II. You had a, a rebuke from the EU, 
the British papers, which are a little pepper, more peppery than the ones in the States, said that they twisted the knife. The word humiliated was used repeatedly. Did you feel humiliated by the way the EU treated your, your proposal? What, what, I, what I felt yesterday was that we have put forward a credible proposal. If we're going to ensure that we have that good trading relationship in future, but also that we protect the interests of people in Northern Ireland, you know, these have been long fought, uh, long uh, uh, you know, worked over and, and uh, uh, developed. But you didn't feel humiliated by the way they treated you? No, what I felt was that Conviction. actually there's, there's a plan on the table from us. If they have, they have issues with it. Let's hear what those issues are. Prime Minister May with CBS's John Dickerson, and the plan was called the Checkers Plan. What is it? What was it? Yeah, so the Checkers proposal was put together by uh, Theresa May and her Downing Street advisers uh, really at the end of June, early, early July. It was unveiled in early July, just actually before President Trump arrived in uh, the United Kingdom for an official visit. Um, the Czechs proposal uh, prompted immediately the uh, the resignation of uh, David Davis, the Brexit secretary, and then Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary, and then a series of uh, more junior ministers also resigned. Um, and essentially what what the Czechs proposal um, is, it's a, so this is a proposal for uh, a future uh, UK-EU relationship. And it has been condemned and sharply criticised by a lot of Brexiteers as, as being too weak need. There are too many concessions to the European Union. And I, mean, I, I would agree with that. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Czechos proposal uh, basically places Britain uh, into de facto regulatory alignment on goods with the European Union. Um, it makes, uh, for example, the possibility of free trade deals across the world more difficult. Um, it is a, it's a deal that also gives a certain degree of power to the European Court of, of Justice in terms of deference to European rulings. Um, it isn't a clean break from the EU, ba basically. Uh, and uh, so, so Chequers is viewed by um, Brexiteers, as, as they're known, as a betrayal of British interests. It's certainly not the kind of deal that Margaret Thatcher would have uh, would have implemented. So, very controversial. Theresa May pushed the Chequers proposal uh, at a EU uh, meeting in at Salzburg um, recently, which was fully rejected actually by the EU. Hence. The, the claims that Theresa May was humiliated at this, um, at this summit. It certainly wasn't a good day for Britain, but it was a bad proposal in the first place that is deeply unpopular among British voters and, and also the EU is rejecting it. So I think it's a non-starter. Let me conclude with these points. First, the timeline. March is the deadline for what? Yeah, so March 29th, 2019, uh, the UK officially exits the European Union. Then there's going to be a transition period which runs through until the end of December 2020, during which time Great Britain remains part of the EU customs union and EU single market. So it's designed to enable a very smooth transition um, as opposed to a hard break to allow the time for businesses, for example, to adapt, to allow the time for trade deals to be negotiated. Now, having said that, um, as the Prime Minister made, uh, made it clear earlier this week, 
um, she said that Britain would, uh, if necessary, uh, go for a no-deal scenario, uh, whereby there is no agreement with the EU in terms of a future uh, trading relationship. There would be a hard break, there'd be no transition period. And if indeed that is the case, um, at the beginning of April uh, you know, 2019, um, it's going to be, you know, th- there's a great deal of uncertainty in terms of exactly how things will will proceed. But the British government uh, is making preparations for the possibility of a no-deal. It's not an ideal scenario, but they're prepared uh, for it. And there are all sorts of dire warnings from uh, from the European Union about the consequences of a, of a no-deal. The reality is both sides want to get a deal. And it's in the interest of Britain and the European Union to have a successful free trading arrangement that's going to benefit British businesses, uh, British consumers, and European businesses and consumers. Um, and so um, the crunch time really is, uh, in the next few weeks, there, 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 there's going to be a, uh, a final sort of negotiation with the EU on the details of a possible deal. November really is the crunch time uh, for that. And uh, we'll see whether Britain gets a deal. If they don't, then we're heading for the no-deal scenario, um, which which I think is is not ideal, but it's better than being shackled to uh, unreasonable demands from the European Union. And I think that's that's the sentiment increasingly of of a lot of Conservative Party um, uh, supporters and many members of uh, Theresa May's own cabinet who believe that. Uh, checkers is uh, you know is not not a is not a strong deal for Britain. They would prefer to see what is known as the Canada Plus arrangement, um, which is a complete break um, in essence from the uh, the EU single market and customs union with no regulatory alignment, but with mutual recognition uh, in in place for regulatory standards. That would give Britain uh, complete freedom to negotiate wide-ranging free trade agreements, including with the United States as well. To that point, realizing there are a lot of variables, whether it is April of 2019 or January of 2021, what will this mean for car manufacturers in Great Britain, for dairy producers that want to sell their products in Europe and elsewhere? Yeah, so so basically... Um, if you do have a, a free trading, uh, you know, agreement in place, it's um, it is pretty much, I think, you know, business as usual for you know for British uh, businesses, and they would then have you know full access to European Union uh, markets, but they are not those subject to the kind of EU regulatory control that is that is in place. So, I mean, I think that would be a win-win for Britain. Um, in the case of a no deal, Britain would uh, simply just um, resort to uh, world trading organization rules. And so the UK would be in a similar position to um, trading with, with the EU that the United States has, uh, for example. And uh, unfortunately, in that scenario, there would be some tariffs applied by the EU against the United Kingdom, which I think would be hugely counterproductive. So the ideal scenario is a, a free trade deal that completely eliminates tariffs between Britain and the EU, which is what the British government wants, based basically. And the EU is playing hardball on this. The reason why they're playing hardball is because if Brexit is a great success, and I do think Brexit is going to be a great success, there's no reason to think Brexit isn't going to succeed. I mean, this is the world's fifth largest economy. Um, Britain is arguably um, 
after the United States, um, the you know the most uh, most powerful you know force on on the world stage today, uh, and it is a leader for freedom. I do think Britain is going to be a great success, but uh, if you're in a situation whereby the EU is opposing tariffs and acting in a mean-spirited way, that isn't productive, I think, for, for the European Union. And the EU fears the success of Brexit because it will encourage others to leave the European Union. And so Jeremy Hunt, Britain's Foreign Secretary, gave a, gave a speech earlier this week where he compared the EU to the Soviet Union, saying that... Um, the EU should not try to force countries to stay inside of it. If they want to leave, they should be allowed to leave. And uh, the EU should not behave as though it, it is running a centrally controlled, um, you know, command and control system. And, and of course, his remarks are very controversial in Europe and loudly condemned by a lot of European politicians. But I think what Hunt was saying, in essence, is, is true, uh, that the EU has become quite dictatorial and controlling and if anyone seeks to leave, the EU is going to try and punish that country as a warning to others, a sort of punishment beating, the sort of thing you used to see in Northern Ireland dished out by the IRA against dissidents there. Um, the EU is trying to frighten other member states from following Britain's path, really. That's not what freedom is all about. And that's that's the way that you know the Soviet Union used to... Uh, you know, used to behave in terms of its mentality. Of course, we're not, you know, we don't have European Union tanks on the streets or anything like that suppressing, um, you know, uh, rebels. But uh, but the mindset that Jeremy Hunt was referring to is a very dangerous one that exists in Brussels among the, uh, the elites of the European Commission, the idea that they can control the destiny of nation states. They can't. And nation states will always rebel against that and they will seek to reassert their own authority and reassert the sovereignty of their own people. And uh, and I think that's what you're going to see with the European Union in, in the decades to come. More and more countries will follow Britain's lead and they're closely watching what is happening in um, over Brexit right now. We thank you for breaking it all down, and my guess is we'll be checking in with you often in the months ahead as the debate continues. Niall Gardner, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation here in Washington and a native of what part of Great Britain? Well, I used to live in London. I've also lived in um, uh, the West Country and in Oxford as well. So different parts of, uh, of, of the UK. Very beautiful place if anyone like to visit. We always appreciate your time. And we thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. A reminder, this podcast is also available on our website at cspan.org. 